and welcome to The Vinyl Approach, Episode 10. My name is Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. I use The Vinyl Approach to discuss specific things that interest me about musicians and their records. With Bob Dylan's 80th birthday coming up later this month, I thought we could dive into one song, a lesser-known recording buried on the flip side of a single. It's a remarkable live recording showing a determined artist in transition. In 1966, Columbia Records released a single from Dylan's forthcoming album called Blonde on Blonde. The song was I Want You, and it did okay on Billboard's radio chart, reaching number 20. But flip this record over, and we find one of Bob's most interesting B-sides. Here, for the first time, fans were given a brief glimpse of Dylan performing live with an electric backing band. The recording of Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues was taken from a concert held in May of 1966, less than five weeks before I Want You was released. This one song, buried on the back of a moderately successful single, and available nowhere else, showed Dylan's audience tangible evidence of his electric transformation. Let's back up. In July 1965, Dylan played a three-song set at the Newport Folk Festival accompanied by musicians with electric instruments. Dylan himself played an electric guitar. There has been a lot written about this performance and many conflicting views, even among those who were there. All agree on one thing. Nobody was expecting an electric set from Dylan that night. Audience reaction is said to have ranged from enthusiastic applause to vehement booing. A good place to find commentary reaction to Dylan's 1965 Newport performance is in a collection of essays edited by Craig McGregor called Bob Dylan, A Retrospective. The book is a collection of reprinted reviews, interviews, and commentary that document the first decade of Dylan's career. The section about Newport is almost unbelievable. Seething letters written to Sing Out magazine by fans denouncing the electric performance. Most felt betrayed. Many openly called themselves former Dylan fans. Bob said nothing. He continued with recording sessions that would become his Blonde on Blonde album. One month after his polarizing 1965 Newport appearance, Dylan began to play some live dates. The concert would begin with a solo acoustic set of several of Dylan's recent songs. This would be followed by an intermission, and then a set where he was joined by musicians playing electric instruments, that is, a rock band. Each set was about 45 minutes. Dylan performed over two dozen concerts in the U.S. and Canada between August and December 65, following this format. Audience reaction was mixed. Bob traveled to Australia in April 1966 to begin a six-week tour. These concerts were Dylan's last before his motorcycle accident later that summer. After this, Bob canceled his upcoming dates and dropped out of the public eye. As such, this Australian and European tour of 1966 stands as a unique era for Dylan as a concert performer. When Dylan first took an electric band on tour after Newport, the makeup of his backing group was varied. But by September of 1965, the personnel had stabilized with Bob using a Canadian quintet for backing called the Hawks. Later christened The Band, Dylan's instrumentalists for concert appearance were Robbie Robertson on electric guitar, Levon Helms drums, Rick Danko played electric bass, Garth Hudson at the organ, and Richard Manuel piano. Drummer Mickey Jones joined this group in March 1966. He replaced Levon Helm, who had chosen not to continue touring with Dylan. 
he cited unhappiness with the unnerving conditions of the concerts. As a performer, Helm was not used to being heckled and booed, which is what Bob and his band often encountered. Just like at Newport, not everybody was on board with Dylan turning electric, and the audience let them know it. Not every night, but often enough, it seems. Levon Helm may have departed in haste, for Dylan briefly used Bobby Gregg and then Sandy Konikoff before Mickey Jones took the drum chair for the European tour. This drummer lineage is worth noting because of Jones's importance to the group. His drumming would forcefully drive Dylan's electric rhythm section during these concerts. The song selections that made up the evening's set list, both acoustic and electric, remained very stable during Dylan's 1966 concerts in Australia and Europe. Based on existing tapes from the tour, the acoustic set almost invariably consisted of the following songs, performed in the same sequence. She Belongs to Me, Fourth Time Around, Visions of Johanna, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, Desolation Row, Just Like a Woman, and Mr. Tambourine Man. All of these were recent compositions. Four of the songs had been released the previous year. But Bob's 1966 audiences could not have known the other three. Fourth Time Around, Visions of Johanna, and Just Like a Woman would not be released until after this tour. Even though some of the songs in this acoustic set were unfamiliar and often complex, most audiences silently paid close attention each night. It's interesting to note that in this acoustic set, Bob sings nothing from his first four albums. There's not an overt topical number or protest song in sight. Mr. Tambourine Man is the oldest song here, first performed in 1964. Bob uses it to close his first set each night. The electric portion of these concerts almost always consisted of the following songs performed in this sequence. Tell Me Mama, I Don't Believe You, Baby Let Me Follow You Down, Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues, Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat, One Too Many Mornings, Ballad of a Thin Man, and Like a Rolling Stone. The audiences could, in theory, be familiar with all but two of these songs. Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat would later be included on Blonde on Blonde, and Tell Me Mama has never been released on a studio album. I say that the audiences could, in theory, be familiar with the rest of these songs because most were given new arrangements that differed drastically from those heard on Bob's albums. For some in the audience, the new arrangements made songs unrecognizable. Bob himself indicates the differences. On most nights before playing I Don't Believe You, he tells the audience, it used to go like that, and now it goes like this. And with that, he and the group kick into a full band version of a song that had been recorded as a solo acoustic number. I find it interesting that almost half of Dylan's electric set is made up of songs taken from his older solo albums. This, after seeming to avoid his early songs during the first set. On many nights of this 1966 tour, Dylan and his band were heckled, not because of the audience's unfamiliarity with the new songs, but because of Bob's decision to tour with an electric rock band. It had to be rough to play this set on certain nights. In recent years, Dylan has spoken of his admiration for the group, calling them gallant knights for sticking it out with him. Bob acknowledges that they were all putting their heads into the lion's mouth. When the single was released in June of 1966, the concerts it represented were already over, and Bob would not tour again for nearly eight years. This lone recording was the sole representation of the tumultuous year of Dylan's electrification, starting with Newport in July of 1965, and ending ten months later at London's Royal Albert Hall. 
I assume that it was Bob himself who chose Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues for the B-side of this single, but I don't know that for a fact. Whoever is responsible made a good choice. It's a fine representation of what later recordings from this tour would further demonstrate. Here was a tight and powerful ensemble of musicians fronted by a passionate Dylan who sounded like he was giving his all. The importance of this release may have been lost at the time, even on Dylan followers. Since the record was available for only a brief period, it could have fallen between the cracks for most Dylan fans. But released it was, and it was the only officially released recording from this tour that Columbia made available for almost 20 years. I say officially released because in 1970 a bootleg album became available on the underground market. It was a soundboard recording of the electric half of a 1966 concert. This unauthorized album was said to have been recorded at Royal Albert Hall. It was actually from another stop on the tour, but that mattered little. What did matter was that fans were able to at last be made aware of what had happened when Dylan plugged in. The album was a revelation, and with great sound. The Live at Royal Albert Hall bootleg was a prized possession of every Dylan enthusiast. Record companies were slow to realize that fans would gladly pay for many of the unreleased recordings in their vaults. Bob Dylan's Royal Albert Hall bootleg had proven this, as had a handful of other early bootleg albums from the era, notably by The Beatles and Rolling Stones. A flood of others would follow, like live shows by Bruce Springsteen. I'll stop here for just a moment to define terms. A bootleg is an illegally manufactured album that contains studio or concert recordings by an artist. The record is made available to the public without the approval of the artist or the artist's record company. They have no control over what music is placed onto the bootleg, and they receive no economic compensation for its sale. Artists and recording companies are, of course, not fans of this underground market. Bootleg albums were originally an outgrowth of devotion, manufactured and distributed by fans of the performer. Record companies at last realized that the people releasing these bootlegs were on to something. Columbia finally embraced the idea of issuing previously unheard music by their major artists. They began to comb through their own vaults for new releases of old recordings. They even called their project the Bootleg Series. Columbia uses this term for archival releases by Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, and Johnny Cash. And these albums make money for the label. Elvis Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, was always reluctant to reissue Elvis's first recordings on the Sun label. The colonel once said, you don't sell your past. But he was wrong. After the live recording of Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues, there was nothing else officially released to further document Dylan's 1966 concerts for nearly two decades. Columbia Records' next release of material from this tour arrived in 1985 in a collection called Biograph. This was a five-record set designed to be a career overview. It featured several unreleased jewels, including three numbers from the 1966 tour, I Don't Believe You, Visions of Johanna, and It's All Over Now Baby Blue one electric and two acoustic performances. Really good to have, but these recordings still did not give a very complete picture of the concerts. Finally, in 1998, Columbia Records released the entire 1966 performance that had been bootlegged as the Royal Albert Hall concert. Because of its notoriety as a famous, if mislabeled, bootleg, Columbia called it the Royal Albert Hall concert, with Royal Albert Hall in quotations. As I say, it wasn't recorded there, the tape was later verified as coming from England's Manchester Free Trade Hall on this same 1966 tour. But by any name, it is on this famous night that an audience member shouts the accusatory epithet Judas at Dylan. 
this one-word damnation encapsulated the betrayal that some fans felt about Bob Dylan's decision to tour with a rock group. With Columbia Records' release of the complete concert, it became part of the official Dylan canon. While many fans had already been well acquainted with the electric part for decades, it was still nice to have the full concert readily available, including the stunning acoustic set. In 2016, 18 years after their official release of the Royal Albert Hall concert, Columbia Records issued a 36-CD box set of all known recordings from the 1966 tour. It was not specifically called a part of the label's copyright extension plan for Dylan's work, but preventing these recordings from falling into the realm of public domain was the reason Columbia issued this massive box of 66 tour tapes. The Copyright Extension Act for Recorded Music is a large legal topic, best left for another day. This box of 36 CDs includes all known recordings from the tour. Many of the concerts are complete. Some are in excellent fidelity. Some are not, but the quality of the performance is almost always stellar. And while a great gift for Dylan enthusiasts, this collection is really more than most would ever want. Columbia's earlier release of the Royal Albert Hall is a representative concert, and even a superior one in some ways. That two-CD set is all that a normal person needs. When I saw Bob Dylan in concert for the first time in 1974, one of the two things I really wanted to hear him sing was just like Tom Thumb's blues. At that time, I didn't know about the song's release as the B-side of a single, or much about the 1966 tour. I said to my friends that I was sure Dylan would not perform the song because it had not been a big enough tune for him. However, four songs into his first set, they kicked into Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues. It was great. I've always had high regard for the song, and in getting to know the box of complete recordings for that 66 tour, I can't help but think that Bob also had special feelings for the song. On several nights, Dylan gives it a lengthy introduction. He talks about the person of Tom Thumb, a famous painter. Bob says the song was about this artist's early days and how the song is a travel narrative that starts in Mexico City and ends in Des Moines, Iowa. That detail caught my attention since Des Moines is my hometown. Dylan's narrative is often disjointed, but the surviving recordings all follow the same general storyline. As I say, it makes me think Bob may have had special feelings for Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues. He sure didn't give any other songs on the tour this type of introduction. Today I have focused on the ramifications of one song found on the B-side of a Bob Dylan single from 1966. That fall, after I Want You had run its course on the radio, the record was gone. And like the season itself, this musical jewel drifted away. Singles were not like albums. Record stores did not stock old singles. They could sometimes be special ordered, but it was not a sure thing. My own history with first acquiring this live version of Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues is not remarkable, but it speaks to its scarcity. After learning that this B-side of I Want You appeared on no other Dylan release, I located a copy of the 45 in a used record shop. It was during a visit to New York City in the mid-1970s. They wanted $15 for it, and that didn't even include the original picture sleeve. Fifteen bucks was a lot of money back then, especially for one song, but of course I bought it. A few years later, this obscure live recording would be released on an import album called Masterpieces. Now it was widely available. I didn't care. It was cool to have the original single. And it still is cool. And I marvel sometimes, all of this from one song on the B-side of a largely forgotten single to a 36-CD box set. Makes you think. But for today, I believe I've thought enough about Bob. This vinyl approach touched on a few topics we didn't have time to dive into. 
things like bootlegs and copyright extensions. And there is quite a bit more that can be said about this 1966 tour and its aftermath. We'll save these topics and others for another show. Stay tuned. A quick reminder that each of these episodes has an accompanying song list on Spotify, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. This has been Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.